2: Up our fourth year of partnership on Nightlight. Um, fifth year will continue to be quirky, thought-provoking, uplifting, and more of the new perspectives that an educated audience expects to hear. Um, let's see. The first Nightlight tandem show was for the. 2018 Mothman Festival. Tonight's show is also on the Mothman, and the return of the Mothman Festival. It's the best um, show in town, in the state, in Ohio River Valley. Um, Come down and see all of us. Um, Steve Ward is... One of our guests, and you can see him at the festival, emceeing at the State Theater. Uh, You can find him at the Mothman Museum on weekends, too. And if that is still not enough Steve for you, um, you can listen to his High Strangeness Factor podcast and Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And we also have Jackie and Bill Kusilis, and they will be two of the many captivating speakers. Uh, Jackie is doing her own business now, and she is also a co-author, along with Bill, of Bridging the Tragedy, uh, which should be available very soon, and Bill has a PhD in psychology. So welcome, everyone. How how are you guys doing tonight?
0: Excellent. Good, Mark. Thanks.
2: How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine, just uh, sitting here trying to get through this uh, show with uh, no computer and a really bad case of poison ivy but yeah but th- yeah this is uh, uh great after you know the last two years of uh, with the mothman festivals being canceled uh, it is back on track for uh, what september um 17th and 18th
3: I believe so. It's, it's always the third weekend in September, however that yes. falls.
2: Yeah, so September uh, 17th and 18th in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Just follow the throngs of people heading to the State Theater. Um, that's Steve, so uh, since you were a guest with us, well, uh, Steve and Bill were guests. Uh, last year, when we were uh, t- talking about it, you know, about the same time, same time last year. Um, um, what's some of the latest news uh, from Point Pleasant? Is there um, something uh, being caught on the moth cam? Any new, any other new well, I- research?
3: When I was working, uh, and when I worked at the museum, uh, oftentimes I will, uh, well, I'll talk to people in the museum part and so forth, and and ask them, uh, is this their first time here, and, and and whether or not it was a planned destination or if they were just driving by. But I also go out by the statue, and uh, and I'll ask because there's there's people that go there that you know one of their group has to take the picture, so I will offer to take the picture of the entire group. Well, there is this. moth cam up there. Uh, A friend of mine was was snapping pictures of me, uh, spying on me, I guess, uh, from the moth cam. So that's a a lot of fun. Although I I will tell people that if you're trying to uh, see somebody you know on the moth cam, it does have quite a delay. So you can make a, a gesture of some sort, and it will take a while to catch up. You could probably be out of town by the time your gesture is registered on the camera. But one thing is I believe this year um the speakers will be at the uh, River Museum they're they're rebuilding the River Museum after the fire that happened a few years ago. Uh I don't think I think the state theater has gotten to the point where it's a little bit uh too old and not quite uh uh sufficient to uh to house the speakers. So uh so there's that. Now I don't actually I don't know all the speakers are going to be there of course Bill and Jackie are going to be there. Uh, Nick Redfern, um, uh, Ken Yearhard, uh, Lyle Blackburn, and I I know that there are several others. I haven't actually haven't checked the website for a while.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, I know Ron Lanham from uh, Wild and Weird uh, West Virginia podcast will be one of the speakers.
3: I I uh, I should be back in the uh, in the saddle. As one of the tour guides on Saturday night in the dreaded T and T area where the Mothman was seen originally. Okay. Cool. So- and that's that's where we we have uh, we have three tractors, uh, we we line up at the uh, uh, farm the uh, farm museums out there right across the road from where the old North Power Plant used to stand where the Mothman was seen by the scarberries and the mallets. And so you got the three tractors, you have got the three carts. Uh, Jeff Wamsley, Brittany Sayer, and myself. Uh, Jeff has the only proper hayride with actual bales of hay. I have what I call one of the old man carts with nice, comfortable seats. And we take people into the dreaded T&T area, which is creepy without any uh, anything additional. But, you know, you, you will probably be accosted by the men in black, which are more like the Keystone Cops than the real men in black, and uh, pretty much a guaranteed flyover of the Mothman. So it's, uh, it's just a, a lot of fun, and it's really great to be able to do it again.
2: Okay, and what is going on with the new business across the street from the Mothman Museum?
3: The, the, trading, uh, the trading post or whatever. that's They that's what just to have everything in there. They're actually going to move it across the street into another building. They're going to expand the Mothman Museum a little bit, but also look at uh, taking the trading post across the street. So it'll be on the same side of the street. And if you go a little further south, you'll hit another one of uh, Jeff's stores called Bunker 304. And that has a lot of old LPs and uh, music-related stuff and other T-shirts. Just another uh, store. That it's a little bit kind of a throwback to Jeff's original stores. He had criminal records where he would uh, sell uh, you know, LPs and uh, cassettes and CDs back in the old days. But uh, so it's uh, it's really his uh, uh, his efforts and his family's efforts have really revitalized Main Street in uh, Point Pleasant.
2: Cool. Okay. So it, it, and when people are going to see the speakers, okay, they, they don't go to the. State Theater uh, where is the venue uh, it's
3: just a little little further down the street uh, not far from where the Mothman statue is it's uh, uh, I think it's just past that uh, bunker 304 if you if you're on the same side of the street as the Mothman Museum mm-hmm. uh, you just keep going a little bit south and you'll see this uh, brand new building that they, that they, they put up and uh, that's where they're going to have the speakers it's gonna okay, be a nice so- uh, venue
2: Okay, it's towards the uh, two and we. Yes, uh, exactly. Park. Okay, right. Okay, get getting in my bearings uh, straight for that one. Okay, so and,
3: and, and later, if you want, we can talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you can expect at the festival. But there's other sites to see where the bridge used to be and the uh, the Great uh, Flood Wall and all that, if you want to get to that later. There's, there's okay. quite a bit to uh, enjoy there, whether you're there during the festival or not.
2: Okay. And Memorial, okay. Yeah, we'll be sure to bring that uh, up before the end of the show. And I mean, we can talk a little bit to Jackie and Bill about, okay, you – Uh, live outside of the Ohio Valley, but how did you become so interested in the Mothman legend and Point Pleasant?
0: Sure. and Thanks for that. Hey, before we get rolling with that, I just wanted to thank Steve for clarifying the venue for the speakers, because when you mentioned the state theater, I about had a heart attack. I've heard nightmares about how hot it gets in there. I'm a really hot-blooded kind of guy. I'd much rather be in this River, the, the new River Museum. I'm assuming it's gotta be air conditioned, right?
3: I, I I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, I'm
3: sure I'm, I'm sure it will be.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that I saw that on uh, on Jeff's page, and I thought, oh, this is going to be really nice because we're not going to yeah. have to sweat to death now. But to answer your question, um, you know, really, Mark, back in probably 2003, I saw the movie, the Mothman Prophecies movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, DVD, checked that out, was really interested in the storyline, and at the end of it, it says that this was based upon real events that happened in Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1967, you know, pertaining specifically to the bridge collapse. So I, I got interested in the whole phenomenon, started studying John Keel's work, followed up on other authors who have written similar things, and then really back in 2016, Jackie said, hey, you know, we need to go on a vacation, where would you like to go? And I said, well, how about Point Pleasant? And she said, if you toss the Serpent Mound in there with that, we'll do it. So we live in Chicagoland, so it's a bit of a haul for us. Mm -hmm. But long story short, we went to Point Pleasant the first time in 2016. We met Carolyn Harris and a guy by the name of Mark Griffith. We became quick friends with them and just fell in love with the people of Point Pleasant, and we've been back every year since then. Okay.
2: And... It, it, your book is at the printers now uh, it should be out you know available uh v- very soon
3: well actually mark i've i've ordered a copy and they and amazon claims it'll be here thursday
2: oh okay uh that that's even better
0: well i've got a a heavy uh production partner who handled all that business and she, what did you upload the file yesterday to Amazon? Yeah. And within 24 hours it was released. So we were super excited. We kind of felt like we needed to rush it to the press because we really wanted to be able to bring some copies out to the festival. But, yeah, it's out and about. It's on Amazon and uh, we're really excited.
2: Okay, cool. I I want to come down and get an autographed copy.
4: We can do that.
3: No extra charge, right?
4: No extra charge. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Only for you to <laughs>
3: <laughs> I can handle it. Okay.
4: So, okay.
2: So, it, it, um, I, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. You know, know a little bit about. You know, remember some of your, you know, the research from last year. Um, I think you have something terrific going on with showing how there is this horrible tragedy, but Mason Countyans are resilient and came back from this um, horrible event. I, I don't know how you – know, small towns you know really do recover from the loss of so many lives all of a sudden so uh, that's what i want to focus a lot of tonight's show on is what happened uh, how are some of these patterns similar to other paranormal and just, you know, other traumatic events that are frequently covered on these late-night talk shows. And what helped uh, the people of Point Pleasant to uh, move forward to a uh, productive future? So maybe maybe just start with some of the uh, generalities about The the bridge. I'm sure most people you remember last year's discussion on that. So, so, um, Bill or Jackie, do you want want to talk talk a little bit about the uh, bridge?
1: Sure, sure.
2: Okay.
0: Yeah, and uh, basically, I mean, when we first had the concept for the, the book it took a little while to kind of bring it all together. You know, we knew that we wanted to do something that involves psychology because that's what my education and my background is in.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then second, we wanted to do something with the whole Mothman phenomenon because that's where, you know, our passion lies. And so we met, I mentioned Carolyn Harris, we met her in '16, and we just really, really were drawn to her and I had told Jackie that I was very interested in uh, in seeing if I could interview her. I knew because she had lost her young son in the bridge disaster that it was something that was taboo. She didn't want to talk about that. Um, I, was, I was kind of hoping, you know, against hope that perhaps I could maybe get her to talk about it and maybe write a story about her. But um, sadly, she passed away before we had a chance to do that. And it was really sad for us both because even though we only knew her for a week, we felt like we knew her for our whole lifetime. She was just that kind of person. So what we decided we wanted to do over the course of, I guess, the next few years, we kept going back to Point Pleasant, spending time with Jeff, getting to know more people in the community. We met Steve a couple of years ago, and we just continued to keep on getting more and more connected to the community. And it just, it seemed like something we'd like to do for the community because they embraced us the way that they did. When you go to Point you feel like you don't know any strangers. Everybody's just so outgoing. And we decided, you know, this bridge disaster was such a horrible thing. You know, a lot of the research that I did for my degrees was based around the concept of post-traumatic growth. It's the good things we get as a result of going through the tough circumstances we face in life. And so after some time of kind of kicking this around and thinking about it, we thought, gosh, that bridge disaster was an extremely traumatic thing that happened in Point Pleasant and in the Ohio River Valley. I know good has come out of this, you know, and you can see kind of on the surface some of the good things that came out of it, but we needed to hear in the experience of people who had been through that, you know, in the community, uh, what it was like for them, what happened and how their lives changed. And then we had a couple of folks uh, out of the 11 that we interviewed, there were only a couple of them that really had any paranormal experiences at all. And so most of the study is based around the growth that happened in the community as a result of the bridge disaster, but there were also some people who had paranormal experiences that also helped them to grow individually too. So we found all kinds of neat things that came from the study. Uh, we had sought out to find dimensions of post-traumatic growth. It's a psychological construct. And we ended up identifying 16 key things that arose from the study that showed how the community developed, people had better spiritual Uh, experiences you know etc cetera. cetera. it just went on and on and it just we we were able to learn so much good stuff from so many good people it was really it was a it was a very rewarding study to be a part of
2: okay as I was going through several books to prepare for tonight's show one of the uh, senses in John Keel's uh, The Mothman Prophecies uh, goes, uh, for one long year in my life had been intertwined with the lives of the people of Point Pleasant. I had been led into relationships and events that seemed to follow a structured pattern beyond my control, even beyond my understanding.
1: um,
2: I think a a lot of research uh, today in um, trauma does focus on... um, and and you know we've also covered it with um you know patterns of you know serial killers as, as well when Mark olshaker has been a guest with us but um you know in, in that passage keel's talking about more of there being a uh structured pattern to the paranormal but how what what are some of the traits? Um, like spirituality, uh, you know that that seems to be uh, typical of uh, post-traumatic growth. Um, so, what are some of the other human uh, structured patterns that emerged from such uh, a terrible? E- event. Uh, uh, Jackie. What? All right. Uh, who who wants to uh, take field that question?
0: You can as well. Did you want
4: to say something? Will you go ahead and say what you're going to say. Well, okay.
2: What I was just going to say was one that comes to
0: mind for me is the, it's the dimension of what they call perspective taking. You know, we we take a look at different things that happen in life, and depending upon where we're standing, you know, it might appear differently to each one of us. And because we're all different individuals coming from our own backgrounds and experiences and ways of interacting with other people and in the world in general, we have a different viewpoint upon things. Now, one of the things that's in post-traumatic growth theory is that what happens is that a paradigm shift occurs because these events that happen, like the Silver Bridge collapse, uh, it's a matter of, you know, most of the people we interviewed never thought that bridge was going to collapse. There were, I think there were two ladies who we did talk to who had been over the bridge before it had collapsed, you know, within a couple of days. And they were saying, you know, this bridge is going to fall. It's all shaky and everything. And the other one says, mm-hmm. oh, it's not going to fall. This bridge has been here forever. It's going to last forever, blah, blah, blah. But when, when the bridge collapsed, you know, a number of the people that we talked to, uh, Denny Bellamy, for one, he participated in our study. He's the Mason County Visitor's. In, uh, Bureau and Convention Center uh, Executive Director, he said one of the things that happens when something like this occurs in your life is that you know something like this can happen. You know, they say it doesn't happen here, but it did happen here. I mean, it, it shatters the foundation of what we're looking at, how we're living our lives, and it forces us to take a step back and, you know, reflect on reality and see it from a different perspective than we did before an event like this happened. That's just one of the things that we were able to uncover.
2: Uh, Jackie, did you want to add another or just extend Bill's comment?
4: Um, Personal development was another thing that um, came from the study. Um, The way people were able to grow from the experience and um, also a sense of community, um, how they held on to each other and you know and they and they still do point pleasant people um susan thayer especially talked about that and um how whenever there is a family or a person in need in point pleasant everybody works together to fulfill the need
1: mm-hmm.
2: that seems to be an Appalachian
0: trait. Yeah. It's interesting, Mark, that you, I mean, obviously we know that West Virginia is in Appalachia, but uh, when I was working on my dissertations, there was an article that I used in the literature review for the dissertation, and it was about the resilience of Appalachian people and how they, you know, how they really respond to trauma, and we were able to utilize that foundational article in what we called our literature review in the book that just came out today. Uh, Also to be able to to talk about the different traits that people in, in Appalachia have, there's hardiness. I mean, these are not people to be trifled with. If if the luck is down. And a lot of times it is, they still pick themselves back up again. They develop community. They stand together. They they do the things they need to, like Jackie said, to come to the, to, to the needs of the folks that, That have to have, you know, what they have to have to get by in life. They're they're there for them. So, you know, hardiness, resilience, perseverance—those are all things that presented from the study. You
2: know, um, and Steve mentioned the um, memorial of, of. the the location of the bridge. Um, Steve, uh, do a uh, quick description of the uh, memorial. uh, Let people know where they can uh, see that uh, since we're on that subject.
3: Yeah, it's just uh, if you're standing uh, in front of the Mothman Museum, it's only a, a block and a half north. It was 6th uh, Street, where the bridge used to go over to Ohio from Point Pleasant. And uh, right now, there's, uh, uh, there's a, a, a memorial there, and then on the on the street, on the sidewalk, uh, the 46 names of the people that perished on the bridge are there. And if you look a little bit further along the flood wall, they have this beautiful mural of the way the bridge used to look with the perspective as it went over to uh, to Ohio, and I should mention briefly that I have I have new digs. I am a displaced Michigander, deep in the Ohio Valley, in West By God, Virginia. I live a stone's throw from Sixth Street, uh, the very route where the scarberries and the mallets fled the Mothman, and uh, uh, the mighty Ohio River and the Mason Dixon Line, for that matter. So, I'm uh, I, I have experienced the community that Bill and Jackie were talking about. Uh, the, I've got great neighbors, great uh, support from uh, from the people around me. So uh, I'm, I'm a, a point pleasant resident resident now, and I never never dreamed I'd actually be living here. But that's where uh, that's where you can go see. And then on the other side of the flood wall, there's another little monument, and there's even a monument across the river at a little rest area uh, around. So uh, and but there's there's so much more to see down down there. Uh, uh, whether you're at the festival or not.
2: Okay. um, Bill and Jackie, um, in in Mothman Prophecies, uh, Keel talks about, let me get the right term, the... Lacoonal amnesia, it's, you know, loss of memory of specific incidents or moments in time. Uh, You know, when we've had uh, several guests on, uh, you know, know, we've gotten into, uh, you know, Betty and Barney Hill's uh, loss of time when they returned to their apartments after uh, after the abduction. Um,
1: <clears throat>
2: now, you know, it might be an extent uh, an extension of that idea, but you know, with your interviews with people and you know, maybe uh, research into just trauma um it, it, does keel's statement about um traumatic events uh seems to have an impact on call abilities or you know uh, memory.
4: Uh, Yeah, one of of the people that we interviewed, um, she was 18 at the time, the bridge went down, and she lost her sister-in-law on the bridge, and um, she was traumatized. She was the youngest child in their home, and all of a sudden, she was taking on the death of her sister-in-law and watching her brother go through such grief, standing by the river, waiting and waiting and waiting for the body to be pulled up and... um, Two little kids were placed in the home with her then, her niece and nephew. And after the interview was nearly over, uh, Bill was kind of like reiterating what she had said. And he said, you know, I, I'm hearing you say this and, you know, I, I, something on the order that, you know, how I, how would I be feeling about this? And then it came to her that she literally had like a near-death experience and was rushed to the hospital, that she had gone into such a deep shock, and she had totally blocked that from her memory and did not even recall it until um, after we had talked to her about this.
0: Yeah, we were literally almost done with the interview, and like Jackie said, I just was kind of speaking back to her some of the things I heard her say and reframing it in my own context of how I would feel if that happened, just like Jackie just said. She said, you know, now that I think about it, um, I dropped dead. <laughs> basically, she didn't use those words, but she had fainted, and she was unconscious from fainting, and she had flatlined. So they had to take her to the hospital and basically resuscitate her. And she, she's got a great sense of humor. We stayed in touch with her, I think, probably as much as anybody else that we have from the study. She's just wonderful. We're looking forward to seeing her again uh, at the festival. But, uh, yeah, she actually – I don't think it really correlates exactly with the missing time phenomenon that maybe Keel talks about, but it certainly was a suppressed memory that that severe trauma of losing, you know, her family member and all these things happening and just being 18 years old and trying to process all this it was too much for her system at the time. She went in shock. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Okay. In
1: yeah,
2: in uh, Donny Sargent and J- Jeff Walmsley's book uh, *Mothman: The Facts Behind the Legend*, you know, uh, there are you know f- few places where Linda uh, t- uh, Scarberry talks about. Uh, Uh, on page 26 none of us have ever been the same after the first sighting Uh, you know there's some passages about uh, um, you know know, we just can't forget Uh, you know things like that and I just uh, found that as we do more of these shows with you know paranormal experiencers, memory frequently plays a role in the story that they're telling us over the uh, two hours.
0: There was another person that we interviewed also for the study who had had uh, multiple paranormal experiences uh, in 66 and 67, and we kind of in on one of them for the study and just kind of discuss that. And hers was uh, more of a a UFO sighting that she had had. And, you know, as you guys are as well versed with uh, the Mothman prophecies as we are, that uh, UFOs were just as prevalent, if not more so, than appearances of Mothman during that time frame. And she had seen a UFO and she kind of disappeared, not disappeared like from the face of the earth or what have you but this was like during daytime and she looked up at it for what she thought was a couple of minutes. And then she went back home and her mom said, where have you been? And she said, well, I was just walking, you know, up and down the street or cause they live out like what they call a holler out there in West Virginia, you know, kind of a neighborhood, but it's different from those Northern Illinois neighborhoods that we live in. And uh, she said, I was just out and about walking mom. And what's the big deal? She says, you've been gone for three hours. So she absolutely had the classic missing time thing at that point in time as well, and then was haunted by various, you know, visions of similar phenomena throughout her life after that too. She's had multiple occurrences of of different things since even the sixties and seventies.
3: But also um, uh, some people like Marcella Bennett, I believe it was, said that after she had her sighting, she's the one that went went out to the TNT area with her brother. They were going to scratch on the windows and, and try and scare some people with the Stories of the Mothman, where she was holding her infant daughter at the time when she saw this thing, and collapsed. But she she said that she wouldn't drive at night afterwards for years. Uh, several of the people had uh, this really affected them, and, and also a lot of strange aspects about the this Mothman, which by the way was about six or seven feet tall, somewhat manlike, a ten foot wingspan, and red glowing eyes. Uh, Kiel and also a Swedish researcher named Franzen, who followed him in there a couple of years later, discovered that uh, a large number of the people that saw the Mothman were also experiencing uh, poltergeist phenomena after they went home. I don't know how long these outbreaks took, but that's got to be pretty unnerving to see things moving around your house, you know, after seeing this Mm -hmm. creature or apparition. So it really uh, had quite an effect on people.
2: Okay. Okay. So, with, with the first sighting, uh, uh, Donnie and Jeff's book uh, covers that they're driving a hundred miles an hour down Route sixty two, um, where there is like three times uh, the Mothman. Uh, hit the top of the car. Um, Okay. Yeah, that's uh, pretty uh, uh, hair-raising events in in itself. Um, But, you know, we were just covering uh, someone who had some experiences, uh, paranormal experiences, stopped driving, at, at night, um, when, you know, we've uh, had Wallace Wagner as the guest and, uh, Steve, I know you've had Michael Carter on your show, um, you know, talk about his uh, book initiation. Uh right. You know, michael uh you know ta- discusses after the experience uh someone is or the ex- experiencer is probably going to have uh, some s- sudden uh behavioral changes uh changes in a career um, you know, like, he, uh, when he was a guest with us, he spoke about, um, you know, really maybe the only thing he ever uh, really read was, you know, the, like, the sports section of the newspaper, and right after the experience, you know, he starts, uh, you know, you know, reading all these like world creation mythology type stories or you are delving into all these sacred texts uh, and it kind of brings back to uh you know someone uh uh stopped so suddenly stopped driving at night um betty and barney hill uh you know, we're working more in civil rights, so after you know the Mothman appearances and or the bridge collapse you know were there uh, people having some sudden changes in interests or careers? I'm just kind of looking for this uh, pattern that keeps um, reappearing in you know, throughout our shows.
0: I would say, Mark, a couple of the people that we interviewed uh, did notice that they had some abilities that they didn't realize that they had after having the experiences that they did, um, artistic, uh, written, really good students in school. Um, the lady that I was talking about that had had the experience with the, the UFO went on to uh, to become a medical intuitive. I mean, somebody who was actually oh. able to die. Wow. Your, your physical conditions uh, face-to-face. And that that's one thing that, you know, you kind of, it's easy to be skeptical about, but I was, we were on a Zoom meeting with her. I think it was the first or perhaps the second time that we'd ever had a conversation with her. I think it was the first And as we were chatting, um, I told her that I was having some trouble with my back. And I I have – Steve and I, I think I've talked about this in front of the Ohio River just visiting. Um, I have degenerative disc disease, and I have a a bulging disc in my neck, and it gives me all kinds of nerve problems. It's it's just maddening. And as I was sitting on the Zoom meeting with her, she said to me, she said, you've got something going on. She said, it's got something to do with your back, but I think it's a little different than that. And she used the word – Diverticulitis. Now, I was misdiagnosed with diverticulitis a couple of years before that, um, and I thought, gosh, I hope she's wrong because that wasn't a very healthy or fun time in my life. Three days later, I experienced my very first ambulance ride to the emergency room at our local hospital oh. for a related issue. It wasn't diverticulitis, but it was gastrointestinal, and I mean that—that that was a real wake-up call. I mean, this chick is legit.
1: <laughs> she she knows what
0: she's talking. But she wasn't doing that, you know, obviously before. Before she had her experience. Now, granted, her experience was at a young age, but she's just very advanced in a lot of ways, uh, very, very uh, in tune with things, and I'm certainly I would call her psychic.
4: She had developed total recall as a child after her experiences, which is really something, and she still, I think, has it pretty strong.
0: Yeah, she's really something special.
4: How...
2: Is total recall being defined? Is it an enhanced memory?
4: Well, she said that um, there were they they took a group of the students from the school into um, rooms gave them assignments, and she remembered what her assignment was, but I don't remember what it was. But they had given her some different books and information, and she was supposed to go read this information and come back when they called her into the room to report it. And when Mm -hmm. she came back in doing her presentation, she said that one of the women stopped her and looked at the man beside him and said, my God, she's got total recall."
0: Yes, yeah, she, she spit it out verbatim yeah. what she had studied. It was something to do with world history, if I remember correctly, that she had never studied before. And she literally went into this room, read it for a few minutes or you 45, know, tw- 45 minutes or whatever, came back and spit the whole thing back out verbatim.
3: And I want to go on wow. the record as saying, I don't have any of that, but Doug, uh, go ahead.
0: <laughs>
3: Me neither. None kind of, kind of a... us.
2: <laughs> but, uh, you know, e- even in Donnie and Jeff's book, it, um, it, uh, uh, on page 31, uh, they do describe Mary H- Higher as uh, it, it just completely took over her life. You know, just all this s- stuff that started happening in 1966. Um, she was not immune to it either.
0: She got totally absorbed in it, you know, as you just mentioned her and how it kind of encompassed her lives. I mean, look at us. I mean, look at the, what is it, one, two, three, five of us sitting around talking about this
3: right now. How, how I've been following them? this since the first flyover in November of 1966, I was in junior yeah. high, and it, it hit the – that's the, the sighting, Scarberry's and the, scarberries in the mallets, It hit the wire services and went all over the world. And here we we all are still – I mean, you can't – Bill and Jackie, you can't imagine stepping away from this, can you? I mean, no. it, you know, it just, no. this just would never happen.
0: Well, and I just caught myself in the math there. There are only four of us here, right? <laughs>
1: well,
3: yeah.
0: But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, here – I I'm not a big movie book. I'm not one that sits still for a whole lot of anything really except for playing video games on my iPad and writing stuff. But you know, I don't watch a whole lot of T V, so for a movie that I watched, which was a good movie, not a great movie, but a good movie that I watched almost twenty years ago, and here we are twenty years into the future, and this is pretty much my life. Yeah, I mean that's that's really something.
2: And uh... In a related topic to how experiences experiences uh or experiencers are impacted um, uh, um dug up another book and you know, try try to uh link it to one of uh, you know the passages in Michael's initiation, um, but I, I'm reading from uh, Peter Levine's uh, "In an Unspoken Voice," and he, he writes, um, "In a lifetime of working with traumatized individuals, I have been struck by the intrinsic and wedded relationship between trauma and spirituality." From my earliest experiences with clients suffering from a daunting array of crippling symptoms, I have been privileged to witness profound and authentic transformations. uh, Dr. Levine's uh, observations seem very characteristic with what's... uh, say uh an author in in an experiencer and researcher like uh michael carter uh wrote about with you ha- have the event and the there seems to be some kind of spiritual connection that follows what
0: um have done, done a lot of that we found a lot of that in our study, you know, and just in my research in trauma in general, even, you know, predating the book that we're talking about tonight, that I think sometimes people get beat down so badly. We talk about it changes the paradigm. The way that you deal with life, your subjective reality is altered forever. You know, the bridge collapse being one event that can we can call traumatic, but it could also be, you know, a, maybe the sudden death of a spouse or it could be a tornado that devastates a small town like fairdale illinois which is 15 miles away from experienced an f4 that was one mile per hour lower than an f5 tornado in a little thousand person town devastated the entire town how, how do we recover from that you know and, and you see all these all these stories of you know community coming together people learning a deeper sense of spirituality whether that's a faith in god or faith in a divine spirit or what that might be, or just having the, the ability to see beyond certain circumstances and know that there's a guiding light somewhere. Let's just shoot for that guiding light and, and to have that inner spirituality. Uh, that was a big one. That was a big thing that presented from our study as well, too. I'd say out of, the, out of the 11 people that we interviewed, three or four of them really spoke about their faith in God as being very, very central to who they were.
2: And, And back to Donnie and Jeff's um, Mothman book, Um, when Linda uh, – I think it was all four – or the two couples wrote out their – made the sheriff's reports – and they uh, are, are, uh, are reproduced in the book as well as uh, Steve. Are they still on display?
3: The uh, the books, or, or you mean the original uh, transcripts? The, the, the,
2: yeah, yeah, the hand. Yes. Yeah. They're uh, okay. And
3: you know, when you first walk into the museum part, they're all up there—the original handwriting—and like you, you say, the book. You're, you're one of the books that Jeff. Uh, wrote he's reproduced all that stuff along with a lot of mm-hmm. other articles in history of what happened at that time
2: yeah and, and linda uh writes um uh, they all uh wanted to uh we all agree we'd like to talk to a minister about it uh, uh, that's you know, like uh, right after you know, coming down uh, Route sixty two with uh, the Mothman hovering over the car at one hundred miles an hour. Uh, that seems to be an I- indication that that this pattern seems to be uh, frequently appearing after some event where there is some kind of like heightened spirituality.
3: May may I interject something here, Mark? Uh, Sure. Jeff told me that he found there was a nurse that that worked uh, at the, I think it was the Pleasant Valley Hospital at that time. She told Jeff that two women were admitted that night to be treated for shock. And so Jeff didn't know about that, so he went to Linda Scarberry when, of course, she was still with us. we really lost her a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, she and Mary Mallett were, uh, were treated for shock at the hospital. That's something that's not really known, very well known. But that's uh, obviously these ladies were not pulling a hoax or, or faking something if they actually were treated for shock that night.
0: Yeah, that's a big deal. That's news to me, too. I had not heard that, Steve.
3: Right. That's, uh, uh, Jeff spent a lot of time with uh, Linda even went back out to where the old North Power Plant stood, and she took him step-by-step step through what happened that night.
0: It had to be difficult
1: for her.
3: Yes. Uh, I, I, it, was, uh, it was several years before Jeff was trying to get her to come to the Mothman Festival for years to talk to people. And I think her first time was uh, my first year there in, in 2006. So, uh, yes, and, and also the, the ridicule that, that went on at the time. Uh, 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 Merle Partridge got it, too, Uh, the people that reported these things. And uh, a lady that I was talking to recently outside the museum said, hey, we, you know, back in those days, you just did not talk about this stuff, whether you experienced it or not. You people, you know, you people would have just thought you're crazy and you just kept your mouth shut.
0: You know, that's and that's a good point, too, in our in our time that we spent with Benny Bellamy. Who? Wow, what an entertainer that guy is. I mean, we had such a yes. good time with him. He, uh, he actually informally spoke to us an hour before we even got the cameras rolling. <laughs> and then after that, had us back to his uh, his property, and we sat out there with him for three or four hours. I mean, we basically spent the whole day with the guy. But he told us, you know, people like Linda, other people who experienced this, uh, he, he used the word crushed. He said they crushed those people the ridicule, you're on drugs, you don't know. I mean, and then whether that was coming specifically from different, you know, people within the community, or if maybe that was from the quote unquote men in black or whoever was trying to police the area or what have you, in any event, you saw this thing, you talked about this thing they basically cut you out of the
2: knees. Uh, I, it seems like so many people have made these uh, – uh, understood that what people are – the experiencers are really talking about is uh, asking for help, Get you know, Trying to heal from what happened, it's it's uh, you know, um, more ex- uh, far more accepted today than fifty some year fifty five years ago.
0: And that's one of the things too that there were several people who we talked to who said that, you know, there was no counseling available back then. You didn't talk about these things. Uh-huh. Um, one of the ladies said, hey, this is West Virginia. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's just the way that it is. You don't admit that something's going on with you mentally, psychologically, that there's some kind of trouble, some kind of trauma. you got to be tougher than that, you know, and that's just the way things were back then and, and to some degree uh-huh. still are. But uh, when when we asked, you know, if there were, counseling available at the time the overwhelming majority said that they don't think that it would have helped or that they wouldn't have chosen it there were one or two that would have been interested but for the most part you know they felt that they got that through their church or through their families or through the community
1: well
2: yeah you know, and um you know, st- uh st- some of the literature and it's really the only people uh, who were diagnosed with that uh kind of problem were just people coming back from you know whatever you know world war two or uh vietnam mhm and it, it, it and and you know, Markman uh, prophecies um, you know, towards the end, and uh, you know about the last chapter of the book. Um, since since um, you know, we're just covering uh, shock uh, on page two ninety, um, Keel does write about. Uh, On both sides of the river, people who had been waiting in the lines to drive over the bridge were crying. Some had to be treated for shock. And then on the preceding page, uh, he he writes, uh, Howard Boggs found himself at the bottom of the river outside his car. Uh, He says, I don't know how I got out of the car or how I got to the surface, but all at once I was on top and caught hold of something like a cotton ball. Uh, You know, there's, you know, uh, there are back to, um, you know, the memory uh, memory issues, uh, the disorientation of uh it approaching uh, darkness i uh, i don't uh, how deep's the river probably like twelve thirteen feet deep uh that that would have to just be uh petrifying where it's like all uh, everything happens so fast and and you're in you, uh you're no longer in your car you're outside of your car at the bottom bottom of the river. Like, do you know which way to swim to get uh, to the surface? Uh, well, uh, know, that I, would ha- have to be uh, just uh, uh, a traumatic experience in, in itself after what, a 50-foot this, fall.
3: I might have mentioned this last time, Mark, but I, I talked at the 50-year remembrance ceremony that weekend. I met Bill Edmondson who was a truck driver going from the
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, West Virginia side to the Ohio side with material going to a tire plant. And uh, his uh, partner was in the cab, never made it out. But he talked about, you know, in reality, the bridge took 30 to 40 seconds to collapse, unlike the way it's portrayed at the end of the movie. Where Richard Gere has all kinds of time to warn people. But the the bridge tilted, everything it went into the, 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 the river. He was forced through the passenger window, Light arm first. Of course, this is December 15th. The windows would be rolled up and he, he was got, got out through the window and the current started to pull him up, but his, his pants were actually dragging behind him, but it didn't leave him because of the 1960s pant cuff. You know how it, it just, mm-hmm. and, and, and he was almost to the surface and then some debris or something caught his pants and started to pull him back under. And so, but he finally kicked free. He hung on to some of the insulation or whatever it was that he was uh, uh, transporting with his with his left arm because his right arm was useless. And a tugboat captain saw him and picked him up out of the river. Just probably moments before he would have died of hypothermia. He was there to pay his respects to those that had died. And you know, the thought in his head was, as been all these years, why did I survive? You know in, in this, mm-hmm. this terrible tragedy and so many innocent people did not.
4: Okay. We'll talk about
0: right. life I mean at that point Denny Bellamy likes to talk and I've heard him in multiple documentaries of also in our interview with him. He talked about you know, how people were just at the ultimate wrong place at the wrong time. And but right. look at the flip side like you just talked about Steve with Bill Edmondson, the ultimate right place. I mean he went down and somehow he came back up and defied death a couple different times and talk about giving your life a new meaning. That's that's a great story.
3: And this is such a, you know, I would be working in Michigan as an electrical wholesaler wearing one of my Mothman T-shirts or making deliveries. A lot of people came in and said they had, that was a reference point. You know, I used to go down to vacation there with my family. We crossed that bridge two weeks earlier. Uh, There's all kinds of people that had a story, some kind of link to the Silver Bridge collapse
2: mhm yeah jackie and bill In steve's example uh the example he just gave um you know, it sounds a little bit like survivor's guilt did, um it, did did you encounter that with um some of your interviewees?
0: Actually, we really didn't because the people who we interviewed weren't people who were on the bridge. They were people who were close to the disaster as it happened or part of the community um, during the time frame of what happened there. But to take your, your question in just a slightly different direction, maybe a little more closer, closer to what we were just talking about a moment ago with Bill Edmondson is that Uh, When we we placed our ad uh, with Beth Sturgeon, she actually put it on the front page of the Point Pleasant Register and the Gallup Police uh, satellite newspaper to that and throughout that area. uh, The first call that we received was from a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Wedge. And if that name rings a bell, I don't know if it does, but if it rings a bell, Jimmy was the coach of the Point Pleasant men's or boys basketball team Uh, the night the bridge collapsed and he was in his coaching debut uh, when this happened. And he actually, before the bridge, before the game began, he knew the bridge was down, but it was his, it was his inaugural game as the varsity coach and his mom was coming to the game. And what he didn't know is his dad who was the vice president of an organization that was based in another state had flown back and was going to surprise him at the game as well too. Mom and dad were on the bridge. Mom and dad both died. So huh. Jimmy was 24, I believe, when the bridge collapsed. And he he had already had his own family. He was married, had a small child. But he was such a tremendous uh, interview. I mean, by far, arguably, nobody lost more than Jimmy West did when the bridge collapsed, with mom and dad both dying in that, in that thing. But he went on to become the mayor of Point Pleasant. He went on to become a West... Virginia state legislator, and at the age of seventy-nine, he was the oldest of all of our participants in the study. And he's he's a self-made guy. He said the time that he had with his mom and dad, he he got a foundation for how to live life, and he learned you know if you work hard and just do the best you can, give it the old college try, you can be successful. And he talked about a composed, um, confident, humble. He he doesn't see himself as humble. He says I'm maybe a little cocky. I think I gained that from the bridge collapse. But uh, confident, successful guy, and uh, he was a really entertaining and fun interview, and I just it had so much. I get chills just even talking about it because when he called me and I got him on the phone, he said I lost both my mom and dad in the bridge collapse, and I immediately thought, oh, my goodness, this is going to be somebody who's going to probably be you know bursting in tears and he was probably in high school or younger when this happened, but he was an adult, and he was so composed and just such a wonderful interview. We we had such a good time talking to Jimmy.
4: Hmm. One of the things was, and it really struck me, was that he was grateful that he was 25 and that he wasn't younger, because if he had been younger he doesn't know that he could have handled it. He, he didn't, you know, he said, you know, if these people that were younger and they lost parents and they lost siblings and grandparents and stuff on the bridge, and, and it would be so much harder. And he was just so grateful that he was old enough to be able to understand it somewhat and, and handle it.
2: Yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. I, it, it, um, it, it, your use of the word grateful, maybe that takes us back to what Bill said er, early on in our talk of some of the uh, key traits was the perspective taking and i, I you, know, you know being uh twenty five uh, you know may help to put that in the event into perspective better than these, you know you know what we're saying uh you know you know to say uh, someone fourteen
1: and that's
0: exactly what he said, I mean, almost verbatim. I mean, he really, he said that for somebody to have lost the parents the way that he did, to be at that age when you're so instrumental and your parents are everything and they represent ability, they represent guidance, they represent family, you know, and for that to be taken at such a young age when you really, really need your parents, even though when you're 14 you don't think you do, you really do. I mean, he was really very... Open about that, and like Jackie had said, I'm grateful that he was older when it happened. And one of the neat things about him, giving back, was another quality you know that came up in the study as mm-hmm. well. He talked about how at some point in time he should have gotten into counseling. And when he said that, when he made that comment, I thought what he meant was he should have checked into counseling and undergone therapy. But what he meant was he should have actually been a counselor because of the experience that he had had and what he'd gone through that he could be a reference point. For somebody else as they're going through these difficult times, one of the neat things that he had said was that when when you're with somebody, he said all you got to do is you got to stand with them. He says you don't got to give them advice, you don't got to this, you don't got to that. He says you need to be there. They'll tell you what they need from you if they trust you. You just have to give them enough enough room to trust. And that's something that the lady that we talked about who had the medical uh, intuitive abilities also worked right. as a as a therapist she said the same thing when people are going through trauma be there for them don't get up don't encourage them to talk about it i mean but be available and if they want to talk about it they will but don't don't push them
2: well and you know bill the um uh, example you were just talking about with the um and, and the coach could have uh gone, gone on to be um uh, uh a psychologist and you know work with other people um yeah you know, that is one of the traits that Michael Carter talks about in his initiation is where uh people want to change the world for the better uh you know it, and global warming, or you know, so, so, some something like that. Uh, 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 Betty and Barney got into uh, you know more of the uh, civil rights activism in the uh, '60s. Uh, you know, there's you know people just become frequently become more involved in like global uh, uh, awareness type. Events and it's not uh, all just centered on themselves. It, uh, you know, Michael wrote about you know going almost like being an apostle and going out to help other people. It, it, Steve, does that it, it sound like what uh, you remember from Michael's book, or uh, what you you and Michael uh, discussed?
3: yeah it's been a while since uh, i did the interview and the letter but yeah a lot of people were uh uh gained a a positive motivation right. to uh to extend themselves and to uh uh you know they just would would find different uh uh goals and uh things that they wanted to do as a result uh you know some people seem to have uh very negative experiences from the, what we might I guess we would call the abduction experience but uh it's encouraging this that, that that some people are uh um, are, are moved to do uh, you know great things with their life mm-hmm. afterwards yeah.
2: it, it, and w- when people are attending the festival. Uh, you know, if they want uh, to walk in, uh, in the fo- footsteps where, you know, so many of these events uh, happened, it, the, a lot of them are just ha- – happen in a, a small area downtown. And uh, how far is it at, out to the TNT area
3: it's about uh, I'm thinking Five seven or eight miles. Oh, okay. North of uh, uh, town, and of course that's where uh, a lot of UFOs were seen. The the Mothman was seen. Uh, the uh, it was funny because uh, Jeff Lumsley's mom was in the museum one day and she saw the one of the mannequins dressed up like the Men in Black, and she asked him what what is that? And she, he and, and Jeff told her. And he said, well, she said, well, I, I saw them back in the in the 60s. And he said, you, you know how long I've been doing this? And you're know, just telling me this now. And he asked, where, <laughs> where were you seeing them? And he she said, outside Mary Hire's office. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah.
3: Okay. So, it, uh, go ahead, Mark.
2: Oh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, is – Mary's office. Uh, the you know, were s- several scenes from the Mothman Prophecies book. Take, yes. Uh, uh, is that the the building is kind of uh, down down there by the State Theater?
3: It's actually right on Sixth Street. One of the white buildings there on Sixth Street was her office. So the bridge, literally, the bridge collapsed just down the street from her.
2: Okay so, so so people uh so you know if they want to uh walk around you know read, read the mothman prophecies and see some of the locations uh they they can do that downtown as well as driving out to the 7 or 8 miles to the TNT area it, it's you know we're not talking of uh, like he, you know, huge distances. It, it, everything is pretty much compact in... You know, well, uh, there is.
3: A, it, it, if they go uh, across the uh, the Barton Jones Bridge, across the Canal River,
2: mm-hmm. down
3: toward Gallupus Ferry, uh, a, around that area, you'll find the Chief Cornstalk hunting grounds, and you can go back in there on some of those very, very narrow roads. You go a little further, you'll hit Gallupus Ferry, and that's where, you know, if you go... uh take Crab Creek uh, Road and hit, turn left on Horselick Road, you'll come, I won't say what road it is, but you'll come to a particular uh, very bad road that goes up a hill. That was one of the places that John Keel and Mary Heyer and others used to go to watch the strange lights go over. So a few miles south of Point Pleasant, down around Gallup's Ferry, back in the Hollers is where a lot of activity took place. Uh, but the uh, different different parts of the of the t and t area if you go to the southern end is uh camp conley road and that's kind of that's about the border i think of the t and t area but that's where the lilies lived and they had all kinds of uh bizarre activity bedroom invaders strange lights going overhead so it's it's a little bigger than just the downtown area but uh, just just also to mention there's an incredible amount of history there as well that you can just by walking around town you can experience And, of course, if you go down to to Tallinde Park, uh, you'll you'll come together where the waters mingle. And that was the name of the column that Mary Heyer wrote, uh, Where the Waters Mingle, where she covered Mothman, UFO sightings, and the Men in Black reports.
2: Okay. And you, at the state park at the end of town, you, know, you do have the, you know, really big, uh, Battle Point Pleasant monument, and, it,
3: and uh, Chief Cornstalk he, is buried there also.
2: Okay, and, and uh, uh, Bill wanted to talk a little bit about the Chief Cornstalk legend. Uh, I, th- I think that's interesting as well. So, uh, Bill, what? What are some of the insights that you want to bring to that discussion?
0: Well, with the Chief Cornstalk legend, I mean, Chief Cornstalk was a historical figure. He was the principal chief of uh, the Shawnee and the Mingo tribes, and he was really trying to do what he could to prevent the settlers from pushing any further west, you know, into, into Ohio and such. And uh, Camp Randolph was at the outpost that the settlers had, and there was a skirmish. Obviously, battle skirmishes were going on. Cornstalk really wanted to bring peace. I mean, he would rather, you know, no more bloodshed. Let's just stop. Let's try to negotiate and such. But uh, in the process of heading to Camp Randolph, there was uh, an incident where a couple, of, a couple of natives had killed a couple of, settlers uh in some type of a skirmish and after this had happened then the settlers got wind of it and when cornstalk and his son traveled to camp randolph they were basically taken prisoner and then shortly thereafter they were executed and i mean the legend has it that there was a, a curse that cornstalk had laid out upon the land and said this land will not prosper for 200 years um, All this kind of taken a little bit of uh taking the grain of salt and such. And our our first trip to Point Pleasant in 2016 at Carolyn's uh, Cafe, we met uh, a lady by the name of Lynn Robinson, who was a seventh-fire descendant of Chief Cornstalk. And we asked her, we said, hey, you know, Lynn, what do you think of this old legend about the curse of Chief Cornstalk? She said, absolutely not. didn't happen. No native would ever curse the land. The land is sacred to them. We didn't own the land. We're stewards of the land. that didn't happen. And so, uh, interestingly enough, she she had the first time that she told us where the TNT area was, and Jackie and I traveled out there with her her half-brother, Mark, Mark Griffith, who's also in our book. Uh, She sent me out there with a a cigarette box where she had basically crumbled a cigarette and the tobacco had kind of fallen into the bottom of the box. And she said, take this out there. She said, because this is basically, you know, a traditional, you know, Indian burial ground, and sprinkle some of the tobacco to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west. And then they'll, you know, the native spirits will basically be appeased by that because they'll see that you're bringing them a gift. And so we did that and kind of went about our business on our first trip out there to the to the TNT. But, um, you know, there was something else that I was going to mention about the, the curse of cornstalk. And that's what Denny, Denny told us. Yeah, go go ahead and tell him about that.
4: Um, Denny said that um, this, there was a school, an old school being torn down and... They tore down a wall, and behind the wall was a closet that had been covered up. And when they opened the closet, there was all kinds of old material in there. And one of the things they found in there were a couple copies of the the Cornstalk play, and it was the Curse of Cornstalk. And the curse was literally written out in that play, and that's where that came from.
0: Word, word for word, I think nineteen yeah. was it
3: twenties. I don't know for sure. Yeah, I think it was the nineteen twenties it was it was definitely uh, some uh, uh, artistic license was added to the uh, Chief Coinstal cause
4: right. And they said that he was shot he was shot at point blank, and there would have been no way that he would have even had time to mumble any type of anything out of his mouth, let alone a full blown curse. <laughs>
0: so. then he actually walked back into another uh, another room of his facility. And came back out with uh, the play. We actually have a picture of it. We snapped a picture of him uh, basically presenting it to us, saying, "Here's where the
3: here's where the curse came from." <laughs> that's that's really cool. Yeah. If anybody had a right to utter a curse, it would have been Chief Cornstalk, who was a peacemaker and betrayed and murdered. But uh, apparently, that didn't happen at all.
0: It doesn't sound like it. Not not from the things that we've been told.
2: Okay, so you, uh, you know, the legend makes for an interesting story, but, you know, we're uh, just getting into, you know, the history, the, you know, like uh, Jackie said, said I, he if you're just shot at uh point blank range uh probably don't have the time to utter you know some kind of uh curse uh okay so, you know, forensics um, is at play as you know we you know re- recreate many of these uh Events. Um, uh, let's see. When 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 we talk about uh, all all these kinds of things, you know, the lead, uh, chief corn stalks. Uh, Curse, or you know, the legend of uh, you know the Mothman, uh, or you know, uh, apply it to other uh, urban legends as well. It, you know, we do get um, the detractors. You know, kind of come out of the woodworks and you know explain that okay I, you know you know being shot at point blank range uh, you know, really uh, uh did, would have prevented the curse from uh ha- happening or uh, you know the, uh chief cornstalk from saying the curse um okay we can look at um you know, uh, uh like the sand hill crane and, and get the scientists you know kind of come out of the woodwork to uh you know be more authoritarian about um you know this mothman thing i you know, it, it just didn't happen they, they they saw the sandhill crane or the uh huge barn owl that was uh, uh, uh shot, uh and it, you know, that ex- explains everything or or it's all just swamp gas. Um you, know, um, you
1: know,
2: this might be a good question for Bill. It's, so why do we uh, get when we have a story like this, why do the authorities just come out of uh, the woodwork to make sure that we believe their version and not the um, uh, just locals' story of, you know, this is what I saw? Well, I, I
1: think the first remember thing... It- Oh, go ahead, Bill. Go, go.
0: Oh, go ahead, Steve. You're good. Uh,
3: I'm just going to mention briefly, uh, I remember Keel uh, giving the, uh, the uh, in quotes, scientists of rough time. He, I think it was in Strange Creatures from Time and Space. He talks about type A scientists and type B scientists. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them is the, uh, uh, like the, the local uh, uh, the scientist or the professor or whatever at a high school, and the other is the one that's in, in academe. And he, he gave a hilarious example of the one that uh, when they, they they thought they discovered the coelacanth, which had supposedly was extinct for 65 million years. This right. one uh, scientist said derided it and said, well, the uh, uh, you know this is a uh, it's not possible, and it was it's a shallow water fish, and blah blah blah. And then of course ten years later they found it. Same scientist said, well, you know we've always expected this. Uh, and you know after all, it is a shallow water fish, and of course it's a deep water fish, but uh yes, keel had a lot of fun uh poking at fun, but it's uh, it's uh, i'd like to hear what what bill has to say, but it's uh it's sort of like the you know you know how when uh, uh uFO reports are are in the news or whatever uh sometimes the news uh, broadcast the local news or even the national news would end with a a uh, uh, a uFO report. And, uh, you know, uh, present it with a chuckle factor. There, there's something, mm-hmm. it seems like there's something, uh, maybe it's changing a little now, but it seems like there's something, the way humans are wired to, uh, to uh, explain away or ignore some of the stuff with laughter. Um, but uh, it's just part of the human condition, I think.
2: Well, you get the Fife Symington uh, uh, press conference right after the Phoenix Lights,
3: Right.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about there, Mark. I mean, when the yeah. guy comes out with the, with the alien head on and basically yeah. is trying to make make a light of the entire, you know, phenomena yeah. that was happening there. And really, I mean, he came back and stepped back from that and apologized for doing that because he knew, mm-hmm. you know, at that point in time they tried to debunk it the best that they could, but there, were, there was really something to that that was tangible. But to go back to your question from a couple minutes ago, the two things that, that I thought of was uh, the first one is the mind doesn't do well tolerating ambiguity. You know, most people like to have answers for things. You know, we, we tend to kind of thrive. I mean, when I say we collectively, those of us that are on this call right now, collectively thrive upon the unknown and get into possibilities and extreme possibilities. It's very, very entertaining. And there's a big portion of society that's interested in that. But then we have our concrete thinkers. They don't tolerate that ambiguity. They they don't like things that are abstract. They like to be able to put names on things. They like to be able to label situations and occurrences and have a tangible reason for for why things work. I mean they have to they have to have their arms around things that way. And I would say that um, the the science that I that I tend to follow is more on the qualitative end rather than quantitative. Not necessarily numbers and statistics and evidence that's numerical but it's more experiential you know it's tell me what your experience is how did this affect you what were your thoughts you know our entire our entire book was based upon qualitative science it's about the experiencers their perceptions and the commonalities that they found and the way that they experienced the things that they did uh, right. i i'm not sure if i answered your question directly but i think two different camps you know concrete and abstract i need an answer I'm open to possibilities.
1: Yeah. No,
2: I, I, I that makes sense. Um, I, I understand where you're going with it. I, uh, I'm sure the audience does, too. I, I, I just, just wanted to throw that possibility out there about, you know, the Sandhill Crane. Uh, it's just as soon as someone says something... Uh, out of the uh, ordinary or you know, outside the usual realms of uh, reality, uh, it, it's, just, it's just someone c- comes in to quickly debunk you. Uh, you weren't there. You you didn't see what I saw. You just you know you're just paid by someone to just say that um, I'm just making up something. I, I, it you know, happens more and more frequently in today's world.
1: One of the
0: folks that we interviewed uh, has absolutely no belief in Mothman whatsoever. I mean, he was the one of the 11 that just really, he's like, it didn't happen. There's nothing to it. And you'll see when you read his interview, he'll jump out at you because those are his thoughts. But he's also the same guy that took us out to the TNT area and was a little spooked in being out there. <laughs> So, I mean, which one is it? Is it did it not happen? Are you afraid that it could happen? Where are you really coming from? You know, it, it's it's funny. He's a good friend of ours today, but uh, it's kind of funny, that dichotomy, you know, and the way that he acted and the things that he said.
4: Well, I think that was because when he was a young boy and moved to Point Pleasant, an older lady told him he shouldn't be wandering on the streets just checking out Point Pleasant, and an older lady told him that he needed to be careful because the moth man, you know, the bird, and... Um, When he was being interviewed, he literally had a look of terror on his face, and he's like, why would you tell a little kid that? That's not something you tell a little kid. So I think that partly he had to believe his entire life that it wasn't true because it was so scary for him when he first moved there.
3: And let's face it, the TNT area is creepy in the daytime. And if you come on a hayride, uh on Saturday night in the dark it 's especially creepy
0: I want to be in that old man ride. that 's where I want to be the comfortable
3: one. <laughs> nice nice comfortable while you 're living in abject terror but uh, <laughs> it's not, not it 's not too terrifying the uh, the the moth fly over the Mothman, is uh is uh, they, they light up his eyes with battery power he comes down a wire near the old acid plant, and they have a sound effect that they have confiscated i can 't say where it 's from because they haven't paid any royalties and I don't want them incarcerated or, or fined before the festival
0: maybe afterwards
3: maybe afterwards yeah so it, it, uh,
2: uh and so speaking of um sound effects um are there still uh props from the movie uh the mothman prophecies and uh you know, the episodes where Je- Jeff appears on the History Channel talking about uh, the Mothman legend.
3: Yeah, along one wall in the museum is all dedicated to some uh, uh, movie props. Now, some of the props might be a little lame, but, but uh, some are very cool, including if you remember the film where uh, 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 Richard Gere's wife is drawing illustrations of what she saw that night those original uh sketches are there uh and and also there's what are there maybe three or four uh, videos uh dvds going all at the same time with different documentaries um of the mothman and you'll see uh, jeff in many of them being interviewed and and uh yeah the, the the one that i'm in uh, they they aren't showing, so I don't know what you know. I I need some equal time. i Although I have to say, the uh, the Mothman of Point Pleasant, which they show right in the in the front room there, uh, I'm in there for about three seconds. Uh, you you'll see if you see Tom yuri and the and the, the camera moving, you'll see the back of my head for about two or three seconds, and you could tell that I was going to be a star.
0: Well, they got the front of your face for the next one.
3: Yeah, that's true, but that's the one they're not showing. So I'm going to have to, uh, I have to go on strike or something. <laughs>
4: Break it, Steve, and they'll never notice. It's just something running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah,
2: you you uh, ha- have an appearance like uh, uh, Brian Siege had in the actual uh, Mothman movie, just.
3: Well, in the sequel that Small Town Monsters did to the Mothman of Point Pleasant, it's called The Mothman Legacy. And The Mothman Legacy actually, uh, according to Seth Biedlove applies to Jeff Longley and his, his daughter Ashley because they're the ones that have uh, continued the legacy with all the things that they've done. Well, I, I have, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really nicely done DVD, and it was great to be part of it. You'll see me occasionally as a talking head uh, pontificating about The Mothman. So, uh, but also, you know, we mentioned the film. Uh, Refresh my my memory. The name of the gentleman that wrote the screenplay. I it, it, his name escapes me at the moment. Um,
0: Richard Richard Adam?
3: Yes, yes. Okay. And it's very interesting to hear him being interviewed because you get kind of an idea of what he was in his head and what his he tried to do with the screenplay. And I, I appreciated the film even more after hearing him. So he's. He's definitely worth hearing in the Mothman legacy.
0: He is. He does a great job in that. You guys both do. Thank
3: you. And, and uh, you
2: know, uh, obviously, the museum is very busy. Um, oh yeah. Dur- dur- you know, during the festival, uh, but. Uh, I mean, you can you know, still enjoy the uh festival, you know, maybe come back another time when uh, you you can know, have uh more time to uh leisurely go through uh the museum. But you know, what are uh some other artifacts besides the uh, Hollywood props that are are there, uh in and the uh handwritten letters Uh, that are featured in uh, Donnie and Jeff's book. Uh, uh, I think there's uh, some of John Keel's um, type letters to many of the uh, uh, Point Pleasant residents.
3: Well, there's uh, uh, an incredible amount of articles that cover the history of uh, of all the events that went on. There's even the article about Bill Edmondson, although they can't get his name wrong. They call him Bill Edmonds, uh, that had been pulled out of the river. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, well, there's, there's even a, a Monopoly board of Point Pleasant. I mean, Jeff's got everything there. He's got, uh, there's a tribute to Carolyn Harris. There's a, a little room off to the side where they won one of the documentaries, and they've taken parts of her Harris' steakhouse. Uh, the the stools the uh, uh the the wall that was there and uh is a tribute to her so you can it's kind of like a little bit like walking into a restaurant um, there is uh gee, there's just uh there's all kinds of uh, mothman statues and things there, there are several boards there there's one that talks about the that that first major sighting there's one that's dedicated to uh, uh, Catherine Harris. And Carolyn Harris, and um, uh, it's just uh, it will take you a long time to go through. I recommend that if you're going to go to the Mothman Festival, get there Friday because you can get into the museum then. But during the festival itself, Saturday and Sunday, the line just goes on forever. So, uh, but it, it is fun to go there uh, off off season, so to speak. But um, there, There is a, uh, you know, up and down Main Street, you're going to get all the usual suspects, uh, food, T-shirts, bouncy houses, a zip line. In the vacant lot, they've got a State Huff Marshmallow Man. Um, they've got Ghostbusters running all over the place. And the, the, the street that's perpendicular to Main Street, where the Mothman statue is, that's where the speakers, and I'm sure you'll find uh, Bill and Jackie there with their books. The speakers are usually there with all their wares, and... Um, it's uh, uh as as Brittany Sayer says, she's one of the ladies that does the tour the uh, hayride, the Mothman Festival is the happiest place on earth.
0: Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. This will be the first time that Jackie and I have been to an official Mothman Festival. We went last I know, year we... with a bunch of diehards, but that wasn't that wasn't the real deal, was it?
3: No, I, I met. I think I met you guys at one of the non-Mothman festivals. Was was that? Uh, may, maybe not. I'm trying to remember what. Uh, but I've been down with with some people uh, the last couple of years during festival time, even though there wasn't an official festival.
4: Yeah, last year we were there with you, Steve.
3: That's right. Okay. And it was that's the year that's before that's that's that
0: we that. met you because we we actually met you because we just had told us to stick around for an extra day because small town monsters was going to be at the museum right. debuting or signing you know copies of their new movie and we are I like to just say that you shanghaied us and we never did get to meet <laughs> those guys we we did meet <laughs> Seth later on because he came to Chicago and I had a small piece in a documentary he did there like a year later
3: but yeah that was okay. fun that was
0: a fun day that's where we met
3: that was a blast that was just so much fun
2: So, uh, um, what is in Bunker Three Hundred Four?
3: It is. Uh, it's sort of a uh, Jeff used to have a uh, a couple stores called Criminal Records where he sold oh, oh, uh, you know LPS oh, so, and and what's that?
2: Oh, so uh, uh, that that's where you could get all that in Bunker Three Hundred Four,
3: and uh, you know, well, it, uh, it's, got t-shirts. it's got a lot of stuff. You have T-shirts. It's got uh, a lot of stuff that's. Kind of rock music related but it's not not exclusive it's uh, uh it's, it's 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 just another nice uh, uh addition to uh Jeff's line of stores so definitely worth checking out some there are some shirts there that you can't get in the Mothman museum or the trading uh, company uh, but uh yeah it's just it's just definitely worth checking out
2: um, Jackie and Bill when you were down. You know, staying there did did you stay at the uh low hotel?
4: well, the last time we went um during last year's Mountain festival, we stayed in Ripley oh okay, yeah,
0: believe it or not
4: <laughs> we could have stayed at the low because everybody canceled their reservations, but when we made the reservation, Ripley was the closest for us to okay. stay
2: yeah. Um, I've heard the, yeah, that hotel was uh, haunted. Uh, I was just wondering if you had any insights into the Lowe Hotel, Lowe's Hotel.
0: We've heard bits and pieces of it. Uh, Funny story, Uh, when we went to Point Pleasant on our trip, I think it was in nineteen it was uh it was november 11th uh, 11 11 <laughs> and uh we scheduled uh just having lunch with jeff and hanging out for a little bit and we showed up and we didn't realize he had told us that the history channel was going to be in town the people from prometheus were doing a video there and there was a lady of uh by the name of linda Sigmund who was being interviewed right out front of the mothman museum as we walked up and it was dreary and it was raining it was a nasty day but um yeah, I mean, we, we went there and just kind of hung out, and I just totally lost my train of thought. What, what were we just Jeff, talking about?
1: Jeff took
0: us to oh, the- Jeff took us to the Low Hotel. Yeah, <laughs> he, he walked us in, and because he's a celebrity there in town, he's able to do pretty much whatever he wants to do. And so he walked us in the Low Hotel and took us around and showed us all over the place, and he said, you guys ought to buy this place. <laughs> and he started trying to talk us into <laughs> buying the place. I'm thinking, uh, that's great, Jeff. I don't think that we have Wamsley money. Uh, and I think this is a little out of our price range, and we live 500 miles away from here. It would be neat to have, but, you know, we have heard the bits and pieces about, you know, certain hauntings and different apparitions showing up. And I think there's a little boy that people talk about rides a, a big wheel or something like that, a, a trike.
4: Tri- a tricycle, because Jeff asked us when we were on the third floor if we heard that, and then he told us about the story. And there's also a Captain um, Jim, isn't that Captain Jim that is seen in the rooms there?
3: Yes, I, I know that story. Because I know yeah. the lady that saw him, and that was in 2006, uh, Robin Bellamy, no relation to Denny. Uh, she, actually, actually, she wrote a, a self-published book about, on the uh, apparitions in the Low hotel. But she was, mm-hmm. was doing a festival, and she went and walked into her room. The door was unlocked, and she saw a man standing by the window looking out uh, over the uh, river. And uh, he, uh, she thought, well, just somebody... Got lost at the you know big deal. somebody got turned around at the festival, and he said something about his his boat or his ship was coming in tomorrow and Then she noticed that his legs didn 't go all the way to the floor, so oh, he started backing up to get a hold of she had her camcorder there and of course, by the time she got a hold of her camcorder, he was gone later on, when she was doing research for the book, she actually found the uh, a, a photograph of this apparition that she saw that night so uh i don't know if they, they used to sell her book at the low uh but uh so that was uh that was pretty interesting and and also mm-hmm. rosemary ellen Guiley used to when when she was there one time and she was uh working near the mezzanine actually i in the uh main lobby i guess she looked up if you look up there's there's, there's these uh sort of openings in the wall where the next floor is she looked up and saw a woman in white and just very briefly and then she was gone so I know two people that had uh, seen apparitions there not me I'd never see an apparition
2: was Robin's um, sighting of this captain was he a riverboat captain
3: I think I think that was what it was. I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure it was. He was a riverboat captain.
2: Okay, Uh, Steve, you're a Keelian scholar. What did Keel say? about some of these apparitions or, you know, what what have you read in all of your extensive readings um, about why why would he be in that hotel room overlooking the river? Is he staying Um, there, like the ship comes in the next day and he was to pilot it down to Louisville or something?
3: The lowe has been there forever, so I don't, would, wouldn't know exactly why the apparition would show up there. But he may have had a connection to the low hotel. I mean, it's, it's so old, but uh, uh, it's, it's really it's very difficult to condense Keel into a couple uh, paragraphs. But uh, he uh, he kind of shied away from the uh, uh, a strictly physical nuts and bolts aspect of all this uh he first he he talked about window areas where these things seem to uh he was trying to come to grips with why these creatures and the these objects seem to come in and out of nowhere and sometimes they they change shape and so forth they don't seem to operate uh under physical law and also he he wondered why is it that there are so many varieties of these craft or whatever So he started thinking in terms of window areas, but then he moved into something that gets really out there where he thought that perhaps some of these, uh, these manifestations were actually transmogrifications of energy, that perhaps they were temporal or paraphysical and maybe even uh, suggested perhaps that we uh, co-create some of these images or things with our, our belief system. They seem to, uh, he talked about paranormal mimicry and so forth. Um, like I say, not easy to condense keel uh, into a couple of paragraphs. But uh, he, uh, he didn't, actually, he didn't reject the notion that all these creatures were paraphysicals. Again, in Strange Creatures from Time and Space, he talks about uh, type A and type B creatures. And he thought some of them were actually unknown physical uh, creatures that had not been discovered yet. But others that didn't, didn't seem to, uh, you know, the uh, Bigfoot prints will disappear in the middle of nowhere, out in the Sierra Nevadas. Um, they're just a, even the Mothman was a paradox. Uh, the Mothman didn't have a wingspan that would probably lift something that tall. And it didn't always flap its wings. Um, it uh, uh, some people that uh, saw it in close proximity thought it gave off some kind of a a humming noise like perhaps something mechanical and again you have the situation where people saw this thing and experienced poltergeist phenomena so uh, he was uh uh, he's he's definitely worth reading Uh, he was probably a century ahead of anybody else and um he's uh endlessly fascinating
0: he's still he's still ahead of a lot of the people that are researching today no question about it i love that Whole concept of the transmogrification of energy and the co-creation, you know, between percipient and the phenomena that you, you're really kind of not necessarily manufacturing, but it's almost like your your psychic energy is engaging the psi plasma or whatever you want to call it to be able to perceive right. these different patients. I've never had any kind of paranormal phenomena. Jackie has had a number of them and she has some very intuitive and, and psychic uh, tendencies. Uh, I don't have that you know I'm more fascinated by this I love talking about it I love researching it but I've never had any of those those experiences
3: he also used the term ultra terrestrial which was uh, he he said it was a uh, he used it as kind of a literary device uh he thought that a lot of whatever this was 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 likely a natural condition of the planet we didn't necessarily have to look off world uh but it also the ultra terrestrial thing kind of implied another dimension or whatever, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, but he it wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't static in his thinking, but he was also, I don't think he was always definitive. It, it wasn't clear whether the this energy or this phenomena was conscious, uh, a, a separate consciousness, or whether it was just something natural uh, to the planet that just reacted and created these images in a certain way. This is part of the, the natural Environment. Are, are
2: most of those books at the gift shop?
3: Uh, several of them are. they you, you mentioned Jeff's book. He's got Jeff has two books. Uh, the other one is called Mothman Behind the Red Eyes. Uh, they're they're excellent. There is uh, uh, there's one or two Keel anthologies there. There's, there's maybe six or eight available, which have uh, uh, gathered together a lot of his uh, articles uh, over the, uh, over the the several decades. The, the only thing I would caution about that is some of the editorial comments, I think are off base. And I, I just caution people to, uh, I don't think Keel needs to be annotated. And uh, unfortunately in some of these anthologies, there are, uh, editorial comments that break in and, uh, suggest things like entered cold was a mobster or something like that. Or I, I don't know, just crazy stuff. But, uh, you know, the, the basic ones, the Mothman Prophecies, the sequel, the Eighth Tower, Now, and the one that really, I don't, I don't remember, Bill, if we talked about Trojan Horse, but that's the, that's the book that turned my, my paranormal world upside down. I came kicking and screaming. I thought, no, 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 UFOs are from Alpha Centauri, or in Mars, you know. Don't give me this, this, uh, this, this uh, ultra-terrestrial stuff. But that is the book that really changed my thinking. And while I was in therapy trying to recover from that, I read Jacques Vallée's past book from Magonia, and I'm afraid I've never looked back.
0: Operation Trojan Horse is really a tour de force. And Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that book what originally was conceived of as the article for Playboy that Thiel was supposed I, I to write? He,
3: yes, uh, he was uh, commissioned to write uh, an article for Playboy, and he was doing all. That's when he was was gathering together uh, in all these uh, newspaper clipping services and making all these statistical analyses. And I'm sure that a large part of uh, Trojan Horse was the result of that research.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a
3: good read. It's a very good read. Yeah, it's just uh, it's it's mind-boggling. <laughs> um, it, it's very different from the Mothman prophecies. And Another thing about, you know, uh, Brent Raines has written a great book on John Keel, John mm-hmm. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. And there, Keel told him that if he had written everything that happened in Point Pleasant, it could easily fill six books. And as it was, the book, the book that he wrote, they cut half of it out. <laughs> now, some of that was salvaged into the Ace Tower. But uh, then there's also a couple really really bizarre books, the uh, the big breakthrough and the uh, big blackout, which are I think came from Doug Skinner's website. Doug Skinner has a lot of uh, Keel's original stuff, and some of that is uh, is like the unedited version of the Mothman prophecies, and so there's some repetition there, but it's very interesting because you get into John Keel's head. But he's especially dealing with this lady named Jane Perro, and he's wondering is she hoaxing? is she making this stuff up and so you really get into his him analyzing this, and he's thinking, well, she knows things that she couldn't possibly know uh but uh so there's there's just uh I recommend anything by keel and uh i I just think that he's uh he's just just fascinating
0: too, that the big blackout is really, uh, it's almost like it runs parallel to the Mothman prophecies. In a lot of ways, it was Keel's Field Notes that were going on right. during that time, but so much of it's dedicated to the New York stuff that was happening. Yes, right. We really only do, you know, in a couple of chapters in the Mothman prophecies, but it's front and center in that book, and it's just weird, weird stuff.
3: Yes, and it's it's no wonder that John Keel became so paranoid, and he wrote the chapter "Paranoids Are Made, Not Born." And it's uh, no wonder he he edited some of that out in the Mothman Prophecies, or at least somebody did.
0: Okay, yeah, unfortunately, that's a much longer book, but. I guess we've got it in a few different volumes with the eighth power because the eighth power really was a big chunk of what was in the Mothman prophecies originally as well. And it really yeah, speaks to the ultra-terrestrial a, theory. The, yeah. the whole concept of us being at a different frequency from perhaps some of these other occurrences, these different manifestations of energy and such, really neat stuff.
2: Okay. And, and you know, we have, like, Four minutes or so left. Um, I wanted to uh, remind people about uh, you, know, you can walk from the to and the, is that how you say, and, and we uh, park um, along the uh, flood wall. Uh, And you you do have uh, gorgeous views of uh, the river, and it's nice to watch the sunset. um, You know, down there has
3: several other uh, uh, sculptures that he's done. The same man that did the Mothman statue. He's got uh, Daniel Boone, Mad Ann Bailey, Chief Cornstalk, and a general whose name I can't remember but it's it's pristine the whole area is just uh just very very well done worth checking out
2: mm-hmm. and and the, the, then there's the um you know, uh, we discussed the uh m- memorial as well that's um more at the north end of town, it, you know, yeah, just it, it's, a, a block yeah. and a
3: half up from the uh, Mothman Museum.
2: Yeah, it, it's Street. Yeah, it, it's really it, most everything we've discussed is all just right, right there downtown. It's just uh, right. s- several blocks, and it, you know, it's really not uh, exhaustive walking. Um, no, it, it's really a family friendly uh day out it's, you know, it's uh free except for you know buying books and stuff like that and t shirts but you know just uh you can just walk around and i meant to pay for parking, but it's uh easy to get around you, know, you really can't get lost you know, there's good food. so a uh, gr- great day out for the family absolutely and, and um so um in the last uh couple minutes uh jackie where where can people get get your uh book
4: it, it's at the Mothman festival first <laughs> and then it's also available on amazon
2: okay and the Uh, uh, What's the title?
4: Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings, in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley.
2: There you go. Okay. Uh, And, Steve, what do you have uh, uh, going on? Are you... you
3: Uh, My uh, show's been on hiatus for a while, the high strangeness factor, on the Paranormal UK Radio Network, but it should be up and running again before too long. Mac Maloney's Military X-Files is a correspondent uh, the same network. Uh, I want to tell people that, uh, get to the festival early Saturday morning, go to the information booth and buy your tickets for the hayride because they will sell out. That's the only thing that costs a few bucks. It will be, it, you can check it off your bucket list, even if it wasn't on your bucket list.
4: Okay. And it going to be located.
3: Uh, it, it'll be right there by the, uh, where the uh, uh, where the Mothman statue is, uh, probably on Main Street, down a little bit. It'll be easy to find. It'll be very centrally located. Thank you.
2: Okay. Uh, Bill, do you have any uh, concluding comments? A benediction for tonight's show.
0: I really appreciate you having us on the show. Mark, thanks for doing that. And I was just going to say, Steve, we've got our books shipping directly to the Mothman Museum. If you get your hands on them before we do Please leave a few for us.
3: Uh, yes, and I will, uh, uh, when I see them, I will photograph them and put them up on uh, Facebook. Oh, awesome. <laughs>
2: thank you. Okay, well, uh, we're just about out of time. And no, you're out of uh,
1: time, Mark. It's time <laughs> to okay. say goodnight.
2: <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll see you guys in about three weeks. Uh, thank you, everyone. Talk, talk to you soon.